Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Later in the program, I'll look at the vulnerabilities of unmanned systems and how to improve their security. But first, joining us is Suzanne Spaulding, the Senior Advisor for Homeland Security, as well as the Director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She was the former Cyber Director at the Department of Homeland Security during the Obama administration. Suzanne, great to have you back on the program. It's always an honor and pleasure. Thank you, Vago. It's great to be back on the program. It is a real treat. It's been too long, and I know how uh, very busy uh, you've been. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. How's the administration been doing uh, in its uh, overall uh, cyber focus? Uh, Certainly a lot of activity. Uh, with Jen Easterly, you know, Ann Newberger is at the White House. We've, we've talked about Chris Inglis, who's joined us numerous times on this program as the National uh, Cyber uh, Director. There really appears to be a spring in, in, in their step. But from your perspective, what's the administration doing right, wrong, and, and where, where can we and they improve? Well, it probably won't surprise you to hear that I think the administration is doing so much that is right, that is good. Um, we've really made very significant progress on cyber in this administration. And um, I think you put, you know, one of the areas in which I see it most clearly is the relationship with the private sector. And and I give a lot of credit to Jen Easterly and the folks over at CISA at DHS for working so hard to get that right. And a, a lot of that started uh, you know, with under Chris Krebs and 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 really even going back to the team that I led, uh, the folks that were working there back when it was NPPD. But it really, we really are seeing the benefits of it today in very concrete ways. So everything from the the JCDC, the Joint Cyber Defense Center, which is really an uh, an operational collaboration, an effort to bring the private sector in. Uh, in a way that involves them in the planning for operational activity and the execution and understanding of the situation that we face. And and then Jen also has this cyber advisory committee, which I'm a part of. So I've had an opportunity to see that up close and personal. And, And from the very first meeting, for example, of that committee, very practical, pragmatic conversations happening between the government and the private sector, uh, sharing uh, mutual understanding, increasing mutual understanding about what each side can do. And and of course, this uh, unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine put put things in very stark perspective. And there's nothing like a crisis to bring people together. But in the context of those conversations, very tactical, concrete, practical things uh, that each side can and and can do and what each side needs from the other. Those relationships are, are, are just light years from where they were. So that's a huge part of it. I think, you know, standing up that national cyber director, of course, I think was, was a really important move. And Chris Inglis has done a terrific job of stepping into and creating something new Um, but really focusing on the most important aspects, having very clear priorities, not trying to boil the ocean, and focusing very much on coherence, on bringing coherence 
to the federal effort, which is absolutely essential. Um, I listen. I think there's some uh, that you know continues to be a need to work through the the lanes in the road, if you will, and the and the overlap and and working relationship and collaboration between the White House position under the NSC that Ann Newberger occupies and Chris's position. But you know, the nice thing is, you just you don't hear a lot of stories about you know fights uh, going on there. Uh, so I really do think folks are coming to this like adults, they recognize the urgency of the threat and everybody knows there's a lot of work to go around. I think the departments and agencies that are the set, what we used to call sector specific agencies are stepping up uh, to their role. So I, I really do think we've seen a lot of good progress. You mentioned uh, the importance of uh, a good relationship with uh, industry. Mike Rogers talks about that every time he's on the program. Uh, you know, how important that is and that for that collaboration to be utterly uh, seamless. What are the keys to making sure that that relationship is good and as good as it needs to be, right? I mean, what are, what are the keys to that? Because everybody talks about the importance of it, but a little bit less about what it takes for that relationship to be good. Yeah. So it's it's a number of things. One is, you know, under, so everybody talks about how we need to maintain trust, right? Everybody gets that. In order for that relationship to work, there has to be trust on both sides. But what does that mean, to your point? How do you, you know, what are the things that threaten that? So you, you've got to have clear understandings, for example, what's going to be made public and what isn't. Um, and, and we saw an incident, at least one, where, where something was made public that wasn't intended to be public in terms of the communications between the private sector and, and CISA, and CISA very quickly stepping up and addressing that in a very proactive way, understanding how vital that trust is. But that trust also comes from, uh, you know, again, understanding the capabilities, the resources, the, uh, you know, what are the equities that each side is bringing to the table in addition to what are the resources and capabilities they bring? What is it what is it that the private sector really needs to know? Nobody wants to be surprised. So understand, you know, what are what are the understandings about thresholds for uh, action? What are the understandings about threshold for sharing of information? Um, those very, again, kind of practical, pragmatic, day-to-day kinds of things are what's needed. And the best way to, to gain that understanding and that trust is that day-to-day working relationship. And again, that's the sort of thing that the JCDC and having private sector folks sitting on an operational floor with government folks, that's how you foster that. You mentioned the unprovoked uh, in, invasion. Uh, indeed, I mean, it's not it's Russia's war, uh, not just on Ukraine, but on the West uh, and, and really the global order as, as we know it. Um, the FBI disclosed that uh, it's done um, what can only be described as a historically uh, extraordinary job of collecting up malware from global networks uh, to safeguard us all, right? Because, I mean, that was a trump card that we expected the Russians to be able to play. We know the Russians have been active, but we've managed to blunt them. So defending forward is working. From your standpoint, what what surprises you about where we are with the Russians? And given what it is that we thought and we expected to see, whether it was from ransomware, state, non-state, unit, 
4455 uh or sandworm or whatever you want to call it what what surprises you about where we are both defensively offensively and just where we are right now yeah i guess i am less surprised uh at where we are vis-a-vis you know russia malicious cyber activity against the united states than i am with with what we have seen in ukraine and and really what i what i'm uh I'm I'm kind of embarrassed to say I'm surprised about, but I think it is consistent with our surprise with what we've seen in the kinetic context as well, is how well Ukraine has done in defending its networks uh, in the context of cyber. Um, We know now in even greater detail with the release of Microsoft's report on what it's seeing through, through its lens in Ukraine that Russia has not been showing restraint in its cyber war against Ukraine to match its uh, kinetic and in some cases, you know, very clearly match targets uh, and timeframes um, that in fact, they have had hundreds of operations against Ukraine government and businesses uh, from six different groups in Russia over the last, uh, you know, weeks leading up to the invasion through March. And, and so it's not that it has not taken any toll, but, um, but I think I have been surprised at how effective Ukraine has been in defending against that. And I, I shouldn't be. I say that I'm a little embarrassed by that because it stands to reason, uh, having suffered one of the you know, first attacks, uh, cyber attacks that hits, hit critical infrastructure upon which a civilian population depended in the attack on the grid in December of 2015, uh, and, and a constant onslaught of malicious cyber activity coming out of Russia since then targeting Ukraine, that they would have invested a great deal of time, effort, and resources in building up their ability to defend their networks. And uh, between their own uh, competence and all of the help that I'm sure they are getting from, from uh, both NATO countries in the United States, but also um, other countries in the region, Lithuania, Estonia, and others, um, that they have managed to do as well as they have to, to uh, blunt the impact of those efforts. Trust that we haven't seen more in the United States and against what, you know, I mean, there was that uh, initial Japan, the Toyota, right? I mean, there were some early actions that we thought could be the sort of the first wave of something bigger. Are you surprised we haven't seen more? I, I guess I'm not really. Um, I, I always think, you know, try to go back and think what is, how, how would cyber fit into the overall strategic objective, right? What is our adversary's objective with using cyber? And, um, and you know, so, so what is Putin's primary objective vis-a-vis the United States? And I think at this point, really, uh, probably the number one thing is to keep us from committing more fully in terms of either boots on the ground or uh, enforcing a no-fly zone um, in the conflict. And so, you know, he's got to figure out to what degree can he use cyber to keep us from engaging in the conflict? And at what point does a, does a cyber attack against the U.S. Uh, draw us more fully, right, into the conflict? And those are not easy calculations to make. Um, so I, so if, if you sort of start at that point, that's what he's trying to figure out. Um, 
you know, you, you, one of the things is you, I always was, uh, when I was in office and looking at our capabilities, you know, one of the things we wished we had really was a more carefully calibrated rheostat of tools, uh, tools that could, that we could use to dial up, you know, very delicately um, malicious cyber activity and dial it back down as appropriate, et cetera, um, as opposed to more sort of blunt tools. Uh, you know, it, it, we, we haven't yet, I don't think uh, anyone in the world, uh, any country, yet really has that finely calibrated rheostat uh, kind of toolbox on cyber. So that's, that's one of the things. You've got sort of fairly blunt instruments. We look at the tools and the warnings that we've gotten from CISA, including the most recent one where it describes the kinds of tools that, that, that Russia is developing to go against industrial control systems, operational technology, including safety systems. Um, but again, you know, if I think any kind of cyber attack that risks uh, harming public health and safety, for example, would be a huge escalation and, and very, very risky. I'm not saying we won't get there at some point, um, but I don't think we, I don't think uh, my sense is that, you know, we're not there yet in terms of um, uh, Putin's level of desperation and, and risk taking on cyber. And then, you know, bottom line too, is that it's not that easy to, to know, to, to have the precise operational impact that you wanna have. You, it's one thing to get into a network, but then you have to fully understand how that network controls the operations, what are those operations and how to have the kind of impact that you wanna have. So I think all those things, not to mention, you know, Russia's, um, there's a lot of speculation that Russia is not as prepared to defend its own networks against retaliation and cyber. Um, so I think all those things sort of militate against. I, I would expect if, if we're going to start to see malicious cyber activity, you know, um, that really makes people take notice from Russia, uh, I think it make, would make sense that it might be against the financial services sector first. And I would think not the top tier uh, folks that are most well defended, but, but perhaps folks that are a tier or two down. Um, so that's that's you know where I would look first. In in many respects, right? I mean, we're surprised. We thought the Russians were a little bit taller than they are, right? Not ten feet tall, maybe a little bit taller, you know, than maybe eight feet tall. And we're finding that they may not be. You know, they're not quite three feet tall, but um, that they're not as good as we had thought they were uh, in 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 the environment. And and clearly, we've got capabilities that we are now using that are holding us in good stead. I've got a couple of more questions I want to ask you, but I, you know, you mentioned operational uh, technology and security of operational technology. And, and that's, you know, as, as the audience knows, but if they don't, right, there's information technology and then there's operational technology, which are the control systems that really the entire planet run on that are controlled through uh, cyberspace, right? We would call it SCADA. Uh, and indeed, John um, uh, Francesco of our uh, sponsor, Fortress, uh, joined us to talk about it. And he's been very, very focused on both S-bombs and H-bombs, uh, hardware uh, uh, bill of origin as, as well as on the software side of things. Um, this issue is getting a lot more attention. Our, our mutual friend, Mark Montgomery, uh, was uh, of the Cyber Solarium Commission and, and now of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, uh, talking a little bit about the amount of money in there to address some of these challenges. From, from your standpoint, are we making enough progress and are we making that progress fast enough, Suzanne, as, as somebody who's been evangelizing the, on this, as you have uh, for a, a lot longer 
been some of us have been repeating what it is you've been saying. Yeah, I do worry uh, that it's it continues to be a bit of an afterthought, right? Um, that the focus is still first on the corporate network and the IT uh, stuff, and then we get to the OT. And I, I see that play itself out time and time again. So even with the JCDC, which I've talked up, you know, here um, uh, already, and I think is such a great organization, they're now, April 20th, they announced that they're expanding their membership to really bring in the OT, uh, the folks who, who, who really have an expertise on, on that operational technology. Um, the, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Uh, there's a, a brief mention here or there about operational technology in the report, but it really doesn't get its due. And I, you know, I think that's an area that we are focusing on in, in the CSC 2.0, if you will, uh, first looking at water systems, but, but you know, we're going to look more as a, as a way of looking more broadly at operational technology. I think the kind of belated focus on resilience and understanding what that means, the focus on continuity of planning, continuity of operations, that's a focus on operations, being able to continue operations and and obviously you know as much as anything else and and um, and I think that is a key aspect to looking at managing risks to our operational technology it it will help us to see more clearly that this is not just about defending our networks or making our networks more resilient it is about understanding the operations the functions those networks enable and and all the ways including analog ways that we can mitigate any impact to those operations. Couldn't agree with you more. And and ultimately, it doesn't really much matter if you have the best bombers, best ships, best vehicles, if somehow uh, they can be rendered ineffectual uh, through their uh, operational controls, uh, operational control systems. Uh, and I'm glad to see that there is a little bit of a greater priority and a little bit of a greater focus on it. Um, I mean, I frankly would, would be a little bit more focused on that if, if uh, it were me, but alas, uh, you know, uh, you, you, you can't have everything, I, I, I suppose, um, without putting too fine a point on it. Um, let, me, let me take you to uh, the Solarium uh, Commission. You were on Solarium 1. Uh, I have to say for our audience, I'm a gigantic fan of uh, the work uh, that you and the co-chairs, uh, Senator Angus King and uh, Dr. Mike Gallagher, uh, the congressman from the great state of Wisconsin, uh, who were co-chairs who, who've really extraordinary, I mean, it was extraordinary, right, Suzanne? I mean, in a universe where there are these blue ribbon studies that don't produce anything, you guys produced just a monumental uh, and tectonic and long overdue change. And and there was a little bit of a groan at the time that it came out. It was the last pre-COVID event uh, that many of us uh, attended. You know, give us your sense on what's been accomplished and you've been named to be on Solarium too. What concretely were the most important accomplishments of Solarium 1? And what is it that you and the team on Solarium 2 hope to accomplish? Yeah, um, you know, it was an, uh, an amazing experience uh, being on the Cyberspace Solarium and, uh, and very surprising to me how incredibly effective it was. I will tell you that was not my, uh, um, I would not have predicted that at the outset. And, and I think it is attributable, uh, you know, the, the bipartisan co-chairs deserve a, a ton of credit. Uh, Gallagher and, and King were, were outstanding and, and set the tone from the top 
that there that this was a completely nonpartisan effort, which it was. And it, and those who chose the members of the commission, um, I think, you know, did very well. It was a great, great team. But a lot of the credit also has to go to Congressman Jim Langevin, who, um, you know, sadly is going to be leaving the Congress and and leaving a, a huge hole when he does. But he was just tireless in his pursuit of, you know, badgering his um, his fellow members and and frankly, you know, convincing them uh, with very compelling arguments that they needed to move forward on so many of our recommendations. And he deserves a ton of credit. You know, the, the, the Solarium Commission, the remarkable thing about the commission was not the set of recommendations it came up with. We, all those came from really smart people all across the country who gave their insights and their time and their expertise uh, to the commission and the commission's amazing staff that took it all on board and wove it into a coherent um, piece of work. Uh, but but there was really nothing new that we came up with. It's not like we dreamt up some brilliant solution. It really was the work of the the staff and those members of Congress that pushed, pushed, pushed to both, you know, the decision to craft legislation to go with our recommendations, which was remarkable, um, and then to work it so hard. So so that was pretty unique. I, uh, uh, you know, I'm very proud to have have been associated with it, but um, but really the credit all goes to to the folks I've suggested. And then the solarium too is just a reflection that, you know, we know we didn't get it all done. Um, despite remarkable progress, there's still recommendations that haven't been implemented. There is a There are really important recommendations like the creation of the National Cyber Director that have been implemented, uh, you know, he's been put in place. But there's a lot uh, uh, still to be sort of tracking there and 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 watching and um, and so a big part, probably you know, in many ways the most important part of of CSC 2.0 is that annual assessment of how are we doing now on this set of recommendations that did get widespread support um, and consensus that this is the right way to move. Are we are we doing it? And are the resources flowing? And 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 um, and are we are we not you know are there areas where we're stalling etc. So that'll be really important. And then as I say, there are some issues that we'll do some deep dives on uh, going forward um, that will be important. Workforce is one of those that continues to be just a, a really meaty area and where we keep getting smarter. And so we'll have more to say. And and um, and uh, water and wastewater is one of the important issues that we felt really needed to be tackled. But as I say, I think that's a context for a broader discussion about uh, operations, operational resilience and, and, and OT security. So, um, so more to, so, so there's a lot more work to do. Very, very happy to be covering all of it. Um, there's so much more I want to ask you, but our uh, time is uh, running short. Let me just brief you, briefly ask you about uh, the courts. Um, you know, the, the, we we have a tendency of focusing on, uh, you know, the uh, national security uh, elements of it, the national security networks, the defense industrial base, uh, right, homeland security, and then we have a the courts tend to be a dramatic afterthought in this, and yet there's not just extraordinary amounts of personal information on it, right? I mean, any foreign power, I mean, why why was OPM targeted? Because that's where the personal information is. Uh, that can be used for all sorts of purposes, from extortion to to other. And the court systems has a remarkable amount of sensitive information in it. 
uh, Suzanne, what, what is it we need to do and how is it we need to think about the court system, uh, the legal criminal justice system, uh, perhaps, uh, and its cybersecurity, which appears to be even less of an afterthought than operational technology? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's a very timely question, Vago, because the the you know news is full today as we record this podcast of the you know discussion about the leaked draft opinion out of the Supreme Court right and while that uh, we you know we don't know how exactly that happened does not appear to have been the result of any malicious cyber activity it it is uh, it does make you pause and think about why it is so important that the courts uh, do take very seriously. The need to secure their systems that that we we have seen the way adversaries will use malicious cyber activity to um, to conduct inf- to enable information operations designed to undermine trust in institutions. We saw that with the elections, with the hack and leak of emails. So the hack and leak of draft opinions, the hack and leak of sensitive information being held by the courts that could be used for to undermine the public's trust in the courts uh, is something the courts have to take very seriously. The public's trust in those courts is, is critical. Um, and, and the courts, I think, should be viewed as part of critical infrastructure. If the public no longer trusts the courts, the courts can't perform the roles we look to them to perform the key functions that we look to them, they perform national critical functions in my mind. Uh, so I think they they really do, they need to focus on this and the government needs to be there to help them. It's been a sensitive issue in a way because the judiciary of course is a fully in, uh, separate uh, a branch of government from the executive branch and an independent branch um, and but but I think CISA and the and and the DOJ and others need to work their way through this and make sure that our courts have the kinds of um, uh, security in place that they need the courts themselves particularly at the state and local and federal level the federal courts particularly need to start thinking of themselves as a network not as individual fiefdoms so a lot of work that needs to be done there. Always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. You're always welcome on and already looking forward to having you back on again uh, soon. Thanks so very much. Thank you. Take care. And joining us now is Andrea Schaumann, the Director of Federal Programs and Partnerships at uh, Fortress Information Security. She spoke uh, at the Association for Uncrewed Vehicle Systems International at their conference in Orlando just recently uh, to discuss supply chain risks of unmanned technologies and advanced weapon systems, uh, talking about cyber vulnerabilities across unmanned systems, uh, uh, global positioning system, uh, and everything else that goes into it, which was uh, both engaging and funny as Andrea always is. Andrea, it's an honor and pleasure having you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you us. so much. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Uh, it's uh, terrific having you. Um, a, a great uh, presentation. Could hear your voice. You know, clearly your voice was all across the presentation and particularly like the Vincent Price uh, slide uh, at the end of <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the uh, acting legend uh, giving googly eyes about working with the government. And I'll ask you that uh, in a second. Um, we heard uh, at the top of the show from Suzanne about the vulnerabilities of unmanned systems, uh, especially what we're seeing in, in Ukraine, right? Always have been concerns that digi systems from uh, from China may be vulnerable. And now we're seeing that a digi system in Russian hands works perfectly well. A digi system in Ukrainian hands does does not. 
And you're making it clear in your presentation uh, that this is actually a very, very important risk when it comes to unmanned systems. And indeed, you have three distinct overlapping concerns regarding unmanned systems. Walk us through those concerns. Yeah, that's right. So I think that you can, obviously, it, it directly applies on crude systems, but it also applies to um, really anything um, as far as delivering a, um, a hard asset or software um, as part of a government contract. So there's the technological aspect. So really that focus on legacy systems, um, whether you want to invest the time and energy and money into updating those or, or just acquiring new um, cybersecurity controls that really have to be in place in order to keep those um, attack vectors secure. Um, the concern for data breaches, corruption, theft, malware, and then uh, your device and data link security. So that's going to get into the evaluation of uh, hardware and software bills of materials. So that's all really uh, within that technology vector. Um, but you have two other areas of concern that overlap that, right? So you have your operational. Uh, that's going to go into your ability to deliver day-to-day -day on the mission. Um, and that uh, primary concern is where overhardening is going to interfere with delivery. So at what point have you created so many um, safeguards that you've actually created speed bumps into delivery. You know, what's a fail safe versus a redundancy? And what do you need in order to make sure that you have continuous readiness, that when it's time, you can deliver on what the core value of the, of the operation is? Uh, and then finally, of course, there's always gonna be the business concern. How do you keep the money flowing? How do you keep revenue coming in? Um, that is gonna include leadership buy-in, um, understanding that this is not just an afterthought on your budget, but it's a primary concern for your business or operation. Um, staying compliant and adopting regulatory controls uh, as opposed to the attestation only programs where people would just check yes and hope for the best. Um, and then if you're not in compliance, that's going to interfere with the ability to generate new or modify any existing government contracts. And then finally, you just have the negative outfall um, for, or negative reputation impact if there's, um, if there's an incident that you, know, that you have a breach. Um, and what are the ways to address each of these uh, three concerns, right? Because uh, each one is a little bit different in, in terms of resolving the, the problems. Yeah, that's right. And so a lot of it's going to come down to, um, you know, that C-suite level and that corporate conversation. So I think a lot of times we understand or we hope that our colleagues are doing exactly what they're supposed to do and that they really understand uh, the items that fall squarely in their wheelhouse. So we assume that it's all being done. And you know what happens when you start to assume um, so on the technological side, you know, like I said, understanding with a legacy system, whether it's time to modernize and maintain um, or replace, you know, uh, how many um, change orders can you issue on a single asset and how much can you modify that to update it with the changing technology before you've created too many vulnerabilities for it to make sense for you in your operation anymore. Um, you know, being an early adopter of cybersecurity controls, being proactive um, and volunteering in uh, adoption of those versus waiting and being reactive understanding the fallout for the data breaches and, and the malware that's out there that could negatively impact your systems, um, doing the evaluation of the devices early before there's an issue, um, and then continuous monitoring and cyber hygiene controls and best practices would be the technological side. Um, on the operational side, it would be really about speaking to the core mission or the va core value and prioritizing that for your operation. So if you think about military aviation, their primary concern is always gonna be delivery and execution of the mission with safety as a close second. But if you think about telling any passengers on commercial aviation that safety is second to on-time delivery of the schedule, it, nobody would ever fly again. So understanding what's necessary to keep the lights on, what, what value your business is delivering to their customer um, or to you know, the population, and then acting early, uh, making sure that you're proactive and hardening the environment to understand advanced persistent threats, 
talking to experts out there, um, Jen Easterly and President Biden have talked about the importance of leveraging public and private partnerships in order to make this happen. So more and more, we're seeing the need to break down these silos so that people are having these conversations and admitting where maybe they've had some failures and talking about what they've done in order to, um, to improve their environment versus everybody you know, wanting to stay secret and uh, protect the secret sauce. Um, I really believe in table topping, the worst case scenarios. And again, that's gonna get all of those key stakeholders around the table to understand um, you know, what could go wrong and still keep the lights on. What, where can we start to turn things off versus um, you know, where's the, like I said, the key value or the, the central mission of the organization. Finally, the business solutions, I think are, are sometimes the most um, difficult to approach because you need to validate controls and, and have voluntary adoption of best practices, which is really about getting leadership buy-in. So and a lot of that hinges on education. Um, that way they're there to back up their team when they're starting to ask for budget and additional support. Um, let me uh, ask you one last question, uh, right? When, whenever, two, two quick questions. One is, um, you know, you have good, fast, and cheap. Uh, right. And there is a tendency of doing two of those, and it might not be the first one, um, right? How do we need to change actually the entire mindset if we're going to address it, right? I mean, we're here where we are for a very distinct reason, What's right. Well, that's the sort of sea change that has to happen to get this to change that dynamic. Yeah. Well, and that again, that hinges on that conversation. So understanding what the risk tolerance is, weighing those priorities and getting those folks to have the conversation in order to identify what does good look like. So, you know, um, you mentioned some of my slides and, and uh, one of the things um, I mentioned is uh, that Yogi Berra quote. So if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. And if you don't have the key stakeholders really firmly identifying what good looks like, then anything that they can acquire fast and cheap might look good just because it's a solution, but it might not be the comprehensive or holistic solution that they really need in order to be safe. In uh, 30 seconds or so, uh, working with the government, great slide with Vincent Price with an arched eyebrow, uh, <laughs> sort of looking at you with, hmm. That's right, that's what, right. What is, what's the key to making sure that, right? Because there is trepidation whenever you're working with government. Yeah, I mean, really understanding that regulatory environment. So it's not as scary as it seems. Um, there is a complex uh, network of DOD um, regulations that, that really firmly lay out exactly what you have to do in order to be compliant. Um, and so early adoption of those practices and understanding what applies to you and your organization is key because then you can lay that all out when you're working with um, either the government customer or the contract officer, you can say, you know, not only are you compliant, but of course we're compliant and here's how and here's why and here's the objective evidence or the change management logs or, or the proof um, in order to show that. And so what that does is it fast tracks you through that sometimes arduous contracting process. It's always a pleasure, uh, Andrea, having you on the program, especially when you uh, consider that we covered Yogi Berra, Vincent Price, as well as had a great odd couple reference that actually many people in our audience might not get. <laughs> well, I do my best to keep it interesting. And for those people who don't know what the, the, the skit we're talking about, it's in from The Odd Couple. And when you assume, you always make an ass out of you and me. And alas, that's where it comes from. Although I, I have had people look vacantly at me whenever I've said that. Thanks so much <laughs> for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks, Vago. I appreciate it.